The War and Peace Museum's exterior is not much to look at. Just an off-white community center sitting on the hillside above Kvalfjöder, a large fjord a short drive north of Reykjavik. But as soon as the doors swing open, the sound of Etta James trusting me wafts out, drawing me into a time machine covered in vintage furniture, artifacts, and memorabilia. Walking in, I'm met by Gudjon Sigmundsson, the man behind this incredible collection. Welcome to Museums in Strange Places. I'm your host, Hannah Huffman, and this is a podcast for people who love museums, stories, culture, and exploring the world. In this season of the podcast, I'm visiting the Museums of Iceland to discover what stories they hold and how they reflect and shape Iceland's unique cultural identity. Today's episode is sponsored by Locatify. Iceland, guardian of the United Nations North Atlantic Lifeline. 1,800 air miles from Halifax, 825 miles from Scotland, and only 900 from Nazi-held Norway. To this subarctic island during the summer of 1941 came the vanguard of an American expeditionary force. This film depicts Iceland as it looked between November 1941 and early spring 1942. My name is Kvidjon Sigmundsson. My nickname is Gøy Litli. I'm the owner of this museum and I um, have been collecting this stuff from the Second World War for about, i say, maybe six years. So it's my private collection of this period of time. Uh, we call it Occupation Center and the under... Uh, title is War and Peace Museum because we we are talking about the war and we are talking about you know what happened here in Iceland during the Second World War from 1940 to 45. But uh, we want to uh, underline that uh, peace is more important than war. And we have a statue outside, and uh, the name of that statue is um, uh, Hope for Peace. And it's in the memory of uh, the people and the soldiers that went down during the Second World War, both in Iceland and in the convoys that went from Kvalfjörður over to Russia to help the Russians to fight the, the Germans. Iceland may not be one of the places that first comes to mind when you think about World War II history. But in fact, the island's strategic location in the North Atlantic sea lanes made it a valuable location for sea and air bases during the war. Remember the Nazi glider from my visit to the Aviation Museum in Episode 12? That's a relic of German interest in Iceland, which began in the 1930s and grew steadily to a level that began to worry British intelligence officers. Records exist describing Operation Icarus, a Nazi assessment on the benefits of invading Iceland. But the Germans weren't the only big powers eager to secure the island. And before they could decide whether or not to take Iceland, the Allies made their move. The British came here 10th of May 1940, week before the German 
had planned to come. And uh, they they stayed here for about one and a half year, and then the Americans took over. You know, the scale of it was that uh, Icelanders at that time, 1940, was 107,000. But people think that it was about 58 to 61,000 soldiers, half, the, half of the population wow. uh, around the country. But here in Kvalfjörður, it was about tw- tw- 28 to 31,000, including uh, the guys that were uh, in the board of the ships. But here were laying about 80 to 120 ships each time. So it was a huge operation. And at this time, it, uh, the population in the fjord was 133 <laughs> persons. So it was a situation. So Britain invaded Iceland in 1940. And yes, it was an invasion, technically speaking, because although there was no fighting, it wasn't voluntary on the part of Iceland, which was still officially under the Danish king. Denmark didn't have much to say about this at the time, because they were in their fifth month occupation by Nazi troops. After the Icelandic government issued a formal protest and demand for compensation for any damage, they offered a de facto cooperation with the UK forces. Because uh, 1941, uh, Churchill went to uh, Roosevelt in, in, in the States and got him to uh, take part of uh, the convoys that went here from Kvalfjörður uh, over to Murmansk and Arkhangelsk in uh, Russia to help the Russians fight the Germans. The convoys that Gudjon is talking about here are the Arctic convoys of World War II. Over four years during the war, 78 convoys of Allied ships sailed from the UK, Iceland, and North America to provide supplies to Soviet troops stationed at Arkhangelsk and Murmansk in Russia. Fourteen of the earliest convoys left from Iceland, mostly from Kvalfjörður, the large fjord that's home to the War and Peace Museum. I won't go more into the history of the convoys since it's a complicated story, but it's fair to say they had a significant impact on the course of the war. And and because of that, this museum is very important for the Russian side because they say that if it was not uh, for the um, convoys from here, the war in Europe had gone a different way. So that was very important. And it was a top secret what happened here. It was just uh, 2011 when a friend of mine wrote a book about this. Then he had got information and research of uh, what uh, went on. You know, uh, someone says even that the government during this time didn't know what was going on. The yeah, government. Yeah. Yeah. God, I talk a lot. Wow. No, <laughs> I want to take a quick aside here to tell you about Locatify, who have generously sponsored this episode. Locatify is an Icelandic software company specializing in mobile apps that use location technologies for immersive audio guides, treasure hunt games, augmented reality, and indoor GPS for museums all over the world. Sponsorship helps me pay for the equipment and software I need to make this podcast. So please swing by Locatify's website, locatify.com, to check out their award-winning products and thank them for supporting museums in strange places. Valur er ég á sjó, valur er ég á sjó, í útlands höfum unnið. 
Well, the history of this museum is that uh, I came here 2010, and I, I you know, I, I, I needed to put up something to draw the attention of the house and, and try to get people in. And I started to uh, tell the story about whaling, because it's a whale feared, and we have a whale factory and stuff like that. So I started to put up a, a little bit of a whale kind of uh, museum. And then they started to uh, whale again, 2011. So I thought, you know, uh, I got a big parking lot, so I'm not going to have a lot of people protesting because of whaling. So uh, we put the whale uh, museum in the gasoline station just nearby the, the, um, uh, in Verstekla. And uh, then I was thinking, you know, w- what should I do? And then I realized when I was a child long, long time ago, uh, that I was traveling here to the farm uh, back north with my grandmother. And my grandmother was pissed. She was talking about the Second World War, that uh, we had been, uh, you know, taken over of the British. And uh, then 1944, we got the independent at the same time that we were, you know, we couldn't do anything. And then she talked about, uh, the. she was a little bit pissed about the situation of, you know, the, the women and uh, the soldiers and stuff. And then I realized maybe I should try to, you know, talk about and, and try to get something from that time. And I started uh, very poorly. And I realized that uh, Iceland is, uh, I, I couldn't find anything. Because after the war, 1945, people throwed everything away. And they didn't want to talk about this period of time. And, um, you know, and uh, it was difficult to um, collect. But the thing is that old people, a lot of old people come and visit. And then they realize that they have some stuff at home. And they are bringing stuff and I, I collect stuff from them all over. And I'm getting, you know, bitten pieces every week. So it's increasing a lot. I mean, you've got all kinds of stuff. You've got camp beds, you've got suitcases, you've got old telephones, you've got hats and uniforms and a submachine gun from the U.S., Russia, and the U.K., helmets, snowshoes, photographs, some sort of canisters for, like, bombs or missiles or something. We've got uh, some Nazi stuff. I got here a uniform, uh, SS German. You know, we have about 10 to 15 uh, private collectors here in Iceland that uh, buys everything that is uh, from Iceland of eBay. But uh, one of my friend, uh, collecting was collecting a lot of stuff from the German side because it's very... You know, they, it it is looking very good, but uh, it made and designed of Hugo Boss. I did not know that. No, no, he was the main designer of every um, every uniform in in the uh, from the German side. And this this is uh, uh, Rieselin, uh, This is uh, the um, the jacket uh, SS jacket uh, made of uh, Hugo Boss. What, uh, what are these posters here? Uh, this is like something in Icelandic, but there's a swastika on this, so I'm kind of curious. Yeah, well, uh, we had a group of uh, Nazi Icelanders before the war. And, and, you know, during the war, 
I think. But the thing is that uh, these two posters came um, to the museum through friend of mine that uh, got it. But he uh, he got this from one of uh, the the printer's shop in Iceland, and uh, this is the only copies. So these are uh, posters from Nazi sympathizers in Iceland. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's very special. Iceland's Nazi Party was founded in 1933 and maintained ties to the German Nazi Party throughout their existence. But they never gained enough popularity to win seats in the Icelandic Parliament. And by 1938, they had dissolved, and the members had joined other parties. Like the rest of Europe at that time, anti-Semitism was very much alive in Iceland, while the individuals were sometimes disparaged by being called a Jew or Jewish. In 1937, the Icelandic Prime Minister Hermann Jonasson remarked to a Danish diplomat that Iceland has always been a pure Nordic country, free of Jews, and those who have entered in the last years must leave. And in 1938, when Denmark refused entry to Jewish refugees from Austria, Icelandic officials followed suit only a few weeks later. After the war, a number of former Nazi party members in Iceland rose to positions of power, even as a handful still expressed strong anti-Semitic opinions. Iceland wanted to remain neutral in the war, and some have suggested that if Germany had invaded first, the reaction would not have been any different than to the invasion by Britain. Of course, in this case, the few Jewish people living in Iceland would have very likely been sent to Nazi death camps on the continent. I think it's important to note that since Iceland had no army, no navy, and no air force at the time, they were completely incapable of mounting a resistance to any invading army, no matter what the sentiments of the people were towards either side. So while it's worth remembering the legacy of anti-Semitism in the country, What if exercises about German invasion will teach us very little, except how non-existent Icelandic defense forces were? I've been wondering about the war in Iceland and then the kind of the effect of the base on Iceland and this kind of stuff. And I, I've had trouble finding information about it. It's just not... You were from the States, Yeah. Right? Yeah. So this is the first thing that the American did in the Second World War. That was here. The f- the f- you know, we, we can say, you know, the first American soldier died here in the Second World War. Yeah, it happened here. But, you know, they... The American has a lot of history, and, and, you know, of course it was a British and American, Canadian, Norwegian, uh, there were uh, France and all kinds of groups here, uh, Scots and uh, all kinds of mixed of, uh, of guys. This is part of our history, 
So we need to, you know, we need to talk about it and and show what what we did and uh, how it went, you know. Yeah. Even the situation with the women and stuff. Of course, it's all over the same problem with, uh, you know, young women. They they fancy the guys in the uniforms and stuff. And uh, it was a very difficult time for for women here because um, they were. Uh, put in prison and uh, was sent away if they talked or have the relationship uh, with uh, with the soldiers wow. of, of the time. So it's a lot of old women that come here to the museum and tell me stories about the the thing that we call the situation. I mean, there just had to be, you know, some people then who had kids with, with soldiers and stuff like that early days. I know you know, since the base was there till 2006, there were a lot of Icelanders and Americans who, you know, became married and had relationships and had kids. But I guess in the beginning, these were more covert. Well, the thing is, here it it was, and, and it's a lot of people that come and visit from abroad that had grandfather or a father based here during the war. And some, some guys are coming because uh, they are you know, American, Icelandic, or or the father was American and the the mother was Icelandic, and and also Icelanders are trying to find the fathers of uh, of themselves. You know, uh, because it was kind of quiet kind of thing because it uh, was a kind of shame yeah. of the family that uh, or the member of the family that uh, did that. You can see here, here we can, we have some letters and stuff, and it's Brotherhood of FBI, and I was very curious about this FBI thing, then I realized that uh, it is uh, Forgotten Bastards of Iceland, that was FBI. Really? Yeah, so... Oh my gosh, oh, it says it right there. Yeah, and I think, I think they are Canadians, the guys, the bastards of... uh, uh, the Busters of Iceland, Forgotten Busters of Iceland. So that was funny. I have had, last summer, I had some uh, guys coming over that were here during the war. One of them was 94 and one of it was 98 years old. And they, you know, told me a lot of stories. One of them was uh, an artist. So he had uh, some drawings and stuff that he brought with him. They talked both of uh, the situation with the women and stuff, and and I asked one of them, you know, these were Americans, yeah, and I uh, asked one of them if he had learned something in Icelandic, and then he said loud and clear, ekki elskan mín." That means I don't understand you, my love. <laughs> so that was very nice, and uh, <laughs> that's all you need to know. Yeah, that's all you need to know, basically. And then you go from there. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Yeah. Before the war, Iceland was relatively poor. And since virtually no crops grew on the island, their diet was simple, mostly fish, lamb, and potatoes. But things changed when the foreign troops started pouring in with their continental tastes. It changed a lot. Uh, The things that the guys was bringing here, like food-wise... We, for the first time, did see some vegetables and fruits and stuff. And 
all kinds of uh, you know turkeys and <laughs> and hams and stuff that we didn't had before yeah i got a lot of stories from the old people that are talking about the food and especially the vegetables and <laughs> and uh, the fruits so i guess there's probably both negatives and positives to the presence of americans it was in a way uh, very good because we were making a lot of money mm. and everyone has uh, a job or something to do at its time so maybe the negative uh, side of it was the situation uh, <laughs> maybe we just talked too much about the situation maybe it was maybe it was just that i don't know What is the weirdest way you've acquired anything? What's the best story of getting a piece in here? I have to think. Um, it is, you know, it was um, uh, about four years ago. The head of the Russian fleet in the north, uh, you know, uh, the fleet that took the uh, the convoys and. And they were uh, guiding them to uh, Nurmansk and uh, Arkhangelsk. He came here a couple of years ago, and he was then 94 years old. Wow. And uh, he gave me his uniform. That is his uniform over there. And wow. that's very special. Yeah, that's cool. And it was very nice to have him here. And because... Everyone tells me that no no Russian came here to Iceland during the war. And uh, he stayed with me for a couple of days and I was driving him around and we talked a lot about the, the um, Second World War. And in the end, he told me that he came here secretly t uh, two times to Kvalfjörður that no one knows about. Uh, that's a cool story. Yeah. So, yeah, and I got his uniform. That's very special. And I got uh, uh, one of the models of uh, his ship that he started. He started his uh, career uh, as, a, as a captain. And then he was the, the uh, head of all the Russian fleet at, at that time during the war. And he ended up here talking to you and just staying with you. That's so yeah. cool. I'm and, like so. I'm so impressed by this. And uh, and told me the secret that n no one knows. In Iceland, World War II has sometimes been referred to as the Blessed War because of all the economic growth it brought to the new nation. Economic blessings aside, 230 Icelanders died as a result of the war most killed while manning cargo and fishing boats in the waters around the island, which were made dangerous at the time by German aircraft, U-boats, and mines. The fighting often got perilously close, like in 1944, when a German plane attacked the armed British tanker SS El Grillo while it was anchored at Seydisfjörður, a fjord by a small town of the same name in the east of Iceland. 
the captain of the SS El Grillo decided to deliberately sink his ship in order to prevent further attacks on the harbor. And the wreck still sits on the bottom of the fjord. It's a popular diving location. So if you've got your advanced open water diving certification and are up for freezing waters, you can descend 30 meters to see the El Grillo still standing upright in the dark blue waters. A hidden reminder of Iceland's unwilling but critical role in defeating the Axis forces in World War II. And if you want to know more, well, you'll have to go to Kvalfjörður and ask Gudjan to tell you about the secrets and stories he's collected along with his artifacts. Thanks for joining me on this adventure as I explore Iceland's many museums and get to know the fascinating people who run them. Today's episode was sponsored by Locatify. The main songs in this episode are by Thomas R. Einarsson. You can see photos of the museum and learn more about Iceland in World War II on my website, hhethman.com. That's H-H-E-T-H-M-O-N.com. Stay tuned for the next episode of Museums and Strange Places, a visit to the Volcano Museum in Stickisholmer, where you can see a world-class exhibit on volcano-themed art, all collected by a man described to me as the Icelandic Indiana Jones of volcanoes. All my stuff is favorite stuff. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Uh...